It's my great pleasure to welcome Professor Richard Shepherd. He uh, is visiting professor at Chester University. <coughs> he very kindly sent me a brief CV, and uh, there were two things in there which I didn't know about him. One is that he keeps bees. And the second thing is that he's got private, pa a private. Um, I can say patient's license. Private <laughs> pilot's license. So, as Dick does his checks and prepares for take-up, I'll just uh, tell you a few more things. About a number of you may have uh, may recognise uh, Dick from the wonderful Channel Five series called Autopsy, where he uh, goes through a number of autopsy reports: Michael Jackson, Michael Hutchins. Whitney Houston, etc. Uh, I have to say, they're fascinating <coughs> programmes, and uh, some I think some are certainly still available on um, Channel uh, Channel Five on demand. They're well, well worth watching. In fact, uh, I, I was so impressed with it that uh, I very nearly found myself <coughs> to the Royal College of Pathology site to give myself a CPD pump. Professor Shepherd has been involved in uh, a number of very high-profile. Cases. He was involved in the Marchioness disaster, the hunger for shootings, if you remember those, uh, the 7-7 bombings. The UK government sent him out to New York after the 9-11 attack uh, and also to Bali after the Sarah's Bar uh, bombing. Um, Professor Shepherd has also been used as an expert on the uh, deaths of Princess Diana and Dodie Fayed and also the death of uh, Dr. David Kelly. As you can tell, I'm shaking a bit. Um, and Professor Shepherd is an expert in restraint, which is just as well as I'm really bad. <laughs> <laughs> Restrain my excitement. <laughs> anyway, different. So, um, I have, as you heard during my presidential address, have had a life a little bit dogged by scandal. But Dick, Dick has chosen a life of crime. <laughs> I think uh, we're now cleared for takeoff. Good. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Can I just say what a delight it is to be asked to come and speak to you tonight? And I didn't realise it was three societies for the price of one. So that's uh, that is excellent. And I'm very pleased to see you, uh, you all here. Uh, <clears throat> I have done my checks. Uh, I've checked that we've got a spinny thing at the front and a couple of sticky out things at the bottom and some waggly things at the side. So we should be okay. Um, it's, it's a in in aviation they say every takeoff is. Um, discretionary, every landing is obligatory. <laughs> they also say that a good landing is one that you can walk away from, and a brilliant landing is one you can walk away from and use the plane again. <laughs> so I'm pleased to say that in 15 years, all my landings thus far have been brilliant. Now, I hope this evening will be as good. Um, a life of crime. Now, what on earth is it takes a sensible, sane person from medicine into the courts, well, apart from paedophilia, use of drugs, and a number of things, in terms of advising the courts, it's something completely different. And for me, actually, it goes back to school, because when I was at school, about 14 or 15, one of my friends brought a copy of Keith Simpson's book into the classroom, and you can imagine what excitement that stimulated in the classroom, uh, all these wonderful pictures of gory things happening. Now, most of my uh, compatriots weren't too impressed, but I thought this was absolutely wonderful, and that was the seed that grew into a career in forensic medicine. 
Um, of course, you have to be a pathologist first, uh, and as I'm sure uh, Jeff and others in the room uh, would agree, there is no doubt whatsoever that that is true. There is one small caveat uh, that I can't use the... Hang on, we're going back here, try again. But we always know, we know everything, but sadly a day too late. I have learned, though, in my career that you don't know everything. Or if you do know everything, there's always a lawyer who's going to tell you that you don't know everything, or at least try and find a different way of looking at it to make it look as though it's completely different, black is white, uh, and whatever. However, I have enjoyed my career. I've now done, I, I counted up the other day, just over 26,000 post-mortems. So I reckon I'm probably quite good at them. Um, although some of my colleagues would say I've just done a bad post-mortem 26,000 times, but that's, that's medicine for you. There are a number of questions. I know we have a couple of coroners in the room, so I have to be a little careful with my law, but one of the bits that the coroner insists, do you want to come down to the front here? You'll see, you'll see better down here. I'd hate you to miss out on anything. Uh, um, one of the things the coroner wants to know is, who is this person? Um, of course, as people who deal with living patients, you're quite clear, because you say, who are you, and they tell you, and providing you're not in a psychiatric unit, you usually believe them when they tell you who they are. But pathologically, it's a little harder. Okay? We have to work through different things. Uh, usually, a relative will identify the individual, uh, and that's a nice, clear process to do. But if we haven't got that, we have to look at other individual things that are going to identify them. And we need things that are immovable. It's, it's no good the fact that someone wears glasses uh, or they have perhaps a perm in their hair or dyed hair. We need things that are not going to be changed and not going to be swapped. So the fact that someone has a wallet in their pocket that says Dick Shepherd doesn't necessarily mean that they are Dick Shepherd. It might just mean they're a good pickpocket. Okay. And that has to be remembered. So, first things we look at are things that can't be changed. So we're going to be looking at teeth. We're going to be looking at fingerprints, because those things are not easily altered. But they're a little outside my normal ambit, so we're going to be looking at things that I'm going to be looking for, and we're going to be looking at tattoos. Now, I have to say, in my career, as a student, junior doctor, someone with tattoos was a prostitute or a sailor. Uh, that sort of narrowed it down, or both, maybe, I mean, you never know. Um, <laughs> but nowadays, it's so much more common, and it's quite good fun, actually. There was um, one man who had this wonderful picture of a heart with a dagger through it, and mum, uh, unfortunately, mum had actually put a real dagger through the tattoo <laughs> and into his heart. So, you know, just occasionally, um, we find things that... Uh, we find amusing, others may find them a little less so, but I seem to think this audience is probably with me on this rather than anyone else. <coughs> okay, so tattoo with Nan, it's not a bad one. Um, I've got five kids and we've gone through the can I have a tattoo, no you can't routine four times actually. The boy wasn't going to go anywhere near it, but the girls have all tried it. And as far as I'm aware, although I have to say, we haven't been on holiday with them for quite a long time and seen them in a bikini, you never know what's there. But everyone has a nan. In fact, most people probably have two. Some people may have more. So it's not really a distinguishing feature, the fact that you've got nan tattooed on your arm. And it's a pretty stock standard sort of tattoo with that sort of squirrely pattern. Hodge London skins. Likely to be a slightly smaller group of people. 
who may or may not have had fathers, but they probably had nans, I suppose. But it's a you know, relatively small group. And this tattoo, if you have an individual with this on, you can narrow it down to maybe a group of 30 or 40 who are within this group of the Hodge London skins. <clears throat> if we add onto his arm, turn up and die, it's beginning to narrow it down more because these things add together. I have to be careful because I said in the presence of uh, the Royal College of Medicine got into difficulties with statistics and it's something I never really understood so I'm keeping well clear of it but if you had two tattoos, two unique tattoos together it makes them even more unique in identifying that person. So this is difficult, actually this bloke did both um, which is why I have a photograph of his arm. Okay. Um, and then we have things like this. Now, I mean, we've all seen the Celtic designs, the pretty flowers, uh, all these wonderful things that people suffer for immensely in their lives. But this I th just appealed to me. Um, you know, Yea, there we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, because we're the evilest motherfuckers who ever walked in the valley. Uh, well, it actually says valley. So one has to wonder about the skills of the tattooist. But this is pretty unique. I and mean, if you can get someone that comes into the mortuary and says, my partner has, yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, blah, 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 tattooed on his um, chest, you can be pretty certain you know who this person is. So tattoos can be really useful. They can be unique. But with all these identifying features, we have to have someone who says to us, he has this, she has this, she has this one. I can't look at it and say, that's John Smith. I need that information coming into me. I need to get the information to compare it. And it's all about comparison. And that really is what forensic pathology is. But I'm not going to say it's easy, although quite is. But it, it, you know, forensic medicine is looking at things and comparing it to known things. So we've identified them. On the other hand, uh, you come across things like this. Uh, medical students no longer have forensic pathology lectures, which is a shame because I'd say to the chaps, I promise you, if they've got that written there, they are not. Okay? <laughs> they are lying about this. Okay? So be very, very careful. And on the other hand, if you need this sort of tattoo uh, occurring there, then maybe you'll have to question the lifestyle of this person. Uh, you will, of course, recognize post-mortem stitching, it's not quite up to surgical standards. Uh, and these changes here are early post-mortem features. But we're not going to dwell on what happens to a body after death. You'll be pleased to hear. Other things? Well, you need things that aren't changeable. Watches, jewelry, items that you fix to your body, even if they're studs or piercings. And God help us, I've seen some studs or piercings in my time. But they are all removable, OK? My daughters, when they used to go out, probably still do, I don't know, because they've all left home, but, you know, they'd go out wearing one set of clothes and they'd be photographed in the party wearing something completely different because they'd gone to Sonia's house and Sonia had a much nicer dress. So I didn't know what they were wearing. Things change. You can't swap a pacemaker at a party, even if it's a really, really, really good party. <laughs> or a hip prosthesis, or things like that. Now, hasn't come out well, but these things are all coded. They all have a unique identifier on them. Why do they have a unique identifier? Is it to help the forensic pathologists in times of stress? No, it's not. It's to follow the batch numbers, because if they have a failing batch, they want to be able to track it and to know who is going to sue them in the future. 
uh, when the pacemaker stops. I do have a philosophical question, though. How can someone die if they have a pacemaker in? I mean, this thing's designed to keep the bloody thing going, isn't it? So I, I've never quite worked that one out. But here's the pacemaker. So unique things that cannot be changed are really good for identification, providing I can get back to this reference number. And that can sometimes be hard. So I can have a unique thing, but I can't trace it back. This is a part of a skull. It's a plate over a very large defect in the skull. This skull came from a young man found in a very, very badly decomposed state in a flat in London with evidence of drug abuse nearby. No one else around, no one to identify him, no one to say who he was or where he'd come from. It was going to be a very difficult case to try and resolve. There were no fingerprints. Although he had teeth, they were in a very, very poor condition, suggesting he hadn't been to his dentist for a good while. So we were going to be in a real struggle to pick this man out. But you'll see, fortunately, to help the surgeons, it's got a f for front and a but for back, <laughs> which is always a good start. And it's got a date, September 1970. And fantastically, and this is the only time it's ever happened, if there's a neurosurgeon in the room, you could tell me if you always do this and it'll ruin my talk. But there is a Robert F. Okay? Robert F's plate. Presumably they had a whole load of people with holes in their head that morning in surgery and they just had to make sure they got the right plate pointing in the right direction on the right head. But this was, this was fantastic. I mean, at least we know this man is Robert F. But he's in London. How many people live in London? 15 million or something now. How are we going to track him out? He's a drug addict in a squat on his own. Nobody knows him. A little bit of serendipity now because it goes back to the times of Northern Ireland what was euphemistically called the Troubles, I thought, well, biggest chance someone's got a big hole in their head is going to be Northern Ireland. And a random phone call to the Royal Victor Hospi Victoria Hospital in Northern Ireland said, did you have a Robert F. in your ward? Neurosurgical ward, September 1975. Yes, we did. Fantastic. And we traced him back through that pure bit of serendipity. Uh, now they'd have said it's data protection. I can't tell you, I'm sure. But we did trace him back. And actually, he was a bright young man. He was a Cambridge PhD student who had a motorcycle accident, severe change in his personality, and an immense decline in his life. And his parents were overjoyed to have their son back so they could bury him and say goodbye to him properly. A lot of people see my job as purely destructive. I cut open bodies. I do despicable things that were I not a doctor and were I not authorized, would be have me in the slammer so fast, and how you can look at me and think, God, that man's cut up 26,000 bodies. I haven't cut up one. You know, is this normal? Well, I'll leave you to judge that at the end of the evening, perhaps. But the point is, helping families understand the death is a crucial part of my job. They don't want that death to have occurred. But if they understand why it occurred and they can help them begin their grieving process that is really, really important. So Robert F's family, sorry to hear he died, were grateful though that we were able to identify him and return his body. Okay, identifications. This is rather more mass disaster stuff because we just have to be a bit careful in mass disasters. We're not dealing with one body, we're suddenly dealing with World Trade 3000, 
London, 30, 40, 50. You can't just assume because someone says, okay, my husband's a colored guy, he's missing his right hand and his left foot. Must be the one you're talking about because if he's come from Angola, there's an awful lot of people in Angola who've trodden on, hand, on landmines and blown off a hand and a foot. Okay. Uh, these ladies, well, you'll find there's sort of extra bits of genitalia there you weren't quite expecting. So if you only have the lower half of the body, you might consider them to be uh, phenotypically female, upper half, uh, phenotypically male, upper half of the body, they're phenotypically female. So you have to be careful. There's the apocryphal story, of course, of the plane going from down to South America for a whole group of people for the final uh, operation, male-female transgender operation that crashes and what are you going to do? I mean, it is apocryphal. But it is something you have to be careful of. And how do people refer to themselves? What gender do they refer to themselves as? Yeah? People leave home in the morning in a suit saying, bye-bye, darling, go around the hot corner, get changed into a frock and go to, to, to work. Everyone at work knows him as a girl. Everyone at home knows him as a man. You have to be very, very careful. And this is world's tallest man and the world's shortest man together, although probably I'd be able to distinguish between those um, on a good day. And of course, once we've worked out who it is, we have to work out the time of death. And dear old Larson, he always manages to sum it up quite well. We've got the murder weapon and the motive. Now if we can just establish the time of death. Uh, can I remind all of you who go into this field, it is a quagmire, it is not a field. It's very, very dangerous. And simplistically, this is how we estimate the time of death. Uh, I'm not going to take it any further than that. But the truth is, we've discovered you can't do it accurately. Keith Simpson, bless him, who taught me a long time ago and whose book I was fascinated by, used to be able to say, people died at 3.36. What a guy. What a guy. You know, the trouble is it doesn't actually stand up now to scientific rigor. And we actually say, do you know, it's quite funny that, because when you read all the statements, the only time this poor bugger, uh, the defendant, doesn't have an alibi was at 3.36. So is there a bit of collusion going on there? I'm not sure. Uh, in those days, when you were the pathologist for a capital trial, where hanging was going to be the punishment if they were found guilty, you also did the post-mortem on the person after they were hung. So that sort of focuses your mind a little bit about the evidence you give. And bizarrely, um, I'm trying to think exactly what year, but the last case that involved capital punishment was heard in the Isle of Man, and I was the pathologist acting for the defence, and we lost. Um, but, of course, it was immediately commuted then to life imprisonment. So it didn't, uh, in the end, matter but that was not that long ago. As part of my career, I actually saw the judge put the black cloth on his head and sentence someone to be hung by the neck until dead. <clears throat> There's that. Oh, this is more of what you come to see, isn't it? Blood-stained baseball bats. Forensic pathology, as I've hinted, is actually very, very simple. There are two and a bit types of injury. There's blunt injury, there's sharp injury, and there's the other bits that get in the way. So let's look at blunt injury first. And the baseball bat has to be the archetypal blunt weapon. Okay? It's got blood, it's got hair. This is a forensic scientist's dream. Okay? CSI will be in there with their smart suits and their glasses all over this, putting it in some form of bag and transporting it. Uh, in reality, people are dressed in those stupid white Tilex suits that I have to put on in front of the press standing in the street. And there are only one size. It's called small. 
<laughs> Actually, I, very seriously, I think the people who work in the Tilex factory, I hope this isn't going to be considered as libelous, but they, um, people in the Tilex factory, I think, just randomly put the sizes into the bags because they like a good laugh. <laughs> you know, so I pick up a bag labeled XXL, and I'm stuck like this, trying to do my job. Anyway, so here's the baseball bat. Bloodstained, it signifies that something not very good has happened. It is evidence, and we have to treat everything very, very strictly in codes of how we manage it. You know, clearly we can't just go and pick it up and put it in a bag. Now it has to be handled, it has to be photographed, it has to be documented. Okay. Blunt injuries then, abrasions, contusions, and lacerations. Okay. Grazes, bruises, and cuts. Okay, and I want you to go away tonight knowing one fact. So it's not too stressful, and you can have half a CPD point for this, and that's all. One fact, and that's the difference between a laceration and an incised injury. But I'm not going to tell you now. I'm going to make you wait for it. Okay? But we all know what these are. We've all fallen off bikes. We've all played rugby or hockey or some blood sport, and we've all ended up with injuries like this. Yeah? And so you know what they are. It's just when you put them in combination that we begin to try and to have to interpret them. This is a poor man who went to buy a copy of The Sun, doing no harm to anyone, and he ended up dead in the road with this injury. And it's got all three. It's got a laceration, cutting across there. It's got an abrasion around there, and it's got some bruising. Okay? Also got some bruising in his eyes and over the nose. So it's a combination. And this is what you normally find with blunt trauma. It's mishmashed together. Because when people hit the road at 60, it's not a simple injury. Okay? It is complex. The thing about this injury, though, is it can tell me something about the weapon that caused it. We can begin to get some idea of the size of the weapon because it stretches from there to there. It's got probably a very clean edge on it somewhere. So my interpretation of this man's cause of death, in a sense, is quite simple. He's died of a head injury fractured skull, probably, certainly brain contusions underlying it. But I'm helping the police more now, because I'm saying, what you're looking for is something that's got some regular edges with a straight edge running through it. And when they went to look back, they found this. Length of timber on the street. And attached to it was a man who was having severe psychotic hallucinations and saying he was being told to kill people with grey hair. Not a good thing but we were able to identify the weapon and to fix it clearly to this sort of thing. Now, of course, forensic science is going to take this a step forward. We're going to match the blood group. We're going to match the hair. There's going to be a whole series of secondary things that follow on. But my job isn't just working out a cause of death. It's taking it much further than that and building it into a whole series of useful bits of information to provide to the police. This is a young man here who was hit by a brick, not this one, because, of course, we would never introduce a weapon or a possible weapon to the body because that's going to contaminate it, so this is a similar brick. Uh, he was driving along a country road at about 15 or 20 miles an hour. Some people coming in the opposite direction lobbed the brick out of their car, went through his car windscreen, and hit him on the face. And once again, you can see irregularity. But the human body, you may have noticed, is not boxes. It's curved, and it's irregular. And so the patterns we see are not necessarily exact. And this is why these two actually diverge. But you can see the fractured jaw 
and he actually suffered from a fracture of C1, C2 with a complete transection of his spine. So death was instant, but it was a rotational injury that killed him. Um, I'm very pleased to say these young lads, who thought it was just a prank, as the people who drop concrete blocks onto things on the motorway think it's just a prank, uh, they were um, caught uh, and sentenced to prison. This man survived a bit, and actually, unusually, I got to see him in ITU. It's a very odd thing going to see someone in ITU, because my training says I have to talk to the patient, even if I know they're deeply unconscious. But what do I say to them? Hello, I'm Dr. Shepard. I'm going to be doing a very serious examination a bit later on. <laughs> uh, or do I just say hello? Or... What? I mean, I, I tend to just leave it at the Dr. Shepherd bit, I have to say. Um, staff on you generally consider me to be dressed all in black with black wings, carrying a scythe. Um, my appearance is not greeted with any uh, great warmth, it has to be said, and I can sort of understand that. On the other hand, I have a job to do. Because I was going to say, one of the problems, it's not a problem, it's a good thing. But one of the things that has happened over my career is people are surviving much longer. They're often surviving and living, which is, which is brilliant news. But sometimes they're surviving and then dying a week or two weeks later, despite all the fantastic treatment they've been given on intensive care units and in hospitals now. But if I wait two or three weeks, these injuries that may be absolutely crucial to my understanding of what's happened will have resolved and will have been disappearing. So I need to get in early on, try not to tread on too many toes and to document them. Okay, blunt trauma, remember? Grazes, bruises, and cuts. So we've got a really stonking graze with a big cut through it there, bruising around his eyes. You see how they sit, and I'm teaching my grandmother to suck eggs, I'm sure, with a lot of you here, but there's a very clear upper margin to that bruising. So that's not because he's been punched in the face, it's because he's got a fractured anterior fossa, and that's bleeding protruding from the inside out. So that tells me there's a fractured skull underneath there, not that it's been punched in the eyes. But if I, can I convince you that if you were to lie on the floor, you'd get injuries there on all the sticky-outy bits, there, nose, and chin. He's got none on this side, apart from that one in his eye, which I've already said isn't due to him being punched in that thing. So this lad has been hit with something big and flat that's hit the right side of his face. Very hard. Okay. Does everybody want to have a guess what the commonest blunt instrument is? Sorry? Frying, pan. Frying pan's a good one. The ground. the ground is even better. Yeah, you'd be good on pointless, wouldn't you? <laughs> Cracking. That, that's a thought. Forensic pathology and pointless. I shall think about that. Um, but the ground, because more people hurt themselves falling to the ground, Drunk, sober, whatever, happy, sad, they fall to the ground. This guy was at a party, sort of party I no longer get invited to, the sort of party when the police come and knock on the door, you get your keys and you throw them as hard as you can into the nearest river because it's cheaper to replace your car keys than the drugs that are in your car and nobody wants to link you to them. So it was that sort of, it was a really good party going on, okay? But the police were coming and he wanted to get something out of his car and he tried to get down the stairs, missed his footing and actually fell down a flight of stairs. And everyone said he landed on the right side of his face 
gurgled a bit and didn't move again. The police were very, very seriously worried he'd been beaten up in this party. But here I was able to say, nope, I'm entirely happy. That's exactly what's happened to this lad. It is entirely innocent, and these injuries fit with that innocent story. So a lot of my career I've spent saying, no, you can't charge him. No, there's no evidence. No, he's innocent. No, that story fits. Bizarre though it sounds. And this is a, another classic injury. Huge lacerations, irregular, on the soles of the heels. This is absolutely typical of someone who has jumped off a high place and landed on their feet. And you land on your heels and your, what's that bony bit, the tibia, gets shot down the bottom of your foot. And it is one of these diagnostic features. Often these people will rupture their belts, and the belt as in clothing rather than a special bit of an anatomy. They rupture their belts and they will often rip their trousers. So they're lying on the ground with feet in peculiar places with their belts and trousers ripped open and it's an immediately a sexual assault. This man has been clearly beaten up and sexually assaulted. No, this is absolutely typical of someone who's jumped out of a high building. Oh, just to prove we are a bit advanced now, we're moving into the field. I'm not going to talk a lot about forensic post-mortem radiology, but in 30 years, I'm just frustrated it's arrived at the end of my career, or towards the end of my career, because this is the most fantastic thing that we are now being able to do in Forensic medicine is the CT, post-mortem CT scans. Uh, they don't do everything that the proponents claim for them, but they're certainly fantastic at giving you images like this that you can see. Fantastically good images to present in court and show juries in a way that we're not allowed to show now with pictures. Okay, so stab, sharp force injuries. Basically, stabbed injuries. Stab is deeper than it's long, incised is longer than it's deep. Okay, can you cope with that? Okay, it's a bit late. Sure, do you want to write it down? You're okay. See, forensic medicine isn't difficult, is it? It's really quite straightforward. And this is, this is we've done half already. I'm not going to be able to keep going long enough, I don't think. Uh, okay, there's knives. Uh, axes, different things, because they have sharp bits and blunt bits, axes. Uh, and if you cross with someone and are sort of hacking away at them, it can turn round and you get different injuries. So you might get some sharp injuries caused by this bit, and some blunt injuries caused by that bit. So you might get a mishmash of things. And because I've got a photograph of it, a globe master axe of this type has actually been used uh, in a particular murder. Okay. Incised injuries, we've all seen these. We've all seen them in this pattern. Um, I can't remember, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, this deliberate self-harm injuries being so prominent. Did I just miss them as a, as a medical student, as a house officer? I think. This self-harming, this sharp force self-harming, is something that's changed in, in 30 years. But the key thing is they are multiple, they're parallel, and they're on an exposed surface. People do not self-harm by cutting themselves in the middle of their back. Okay? They do not self-harm by cutting their faces unless they are truly psychotic. They do not self-harm by cutting their nipples, male and female. Very seldom they will self-harm by cutting their genitalia, but once again, there has to be an underlying severe psychological process going on. So accessible, superficial, multiple, parallel, seldom life-inflicting, unless you progress to the next stage when um, the particular areas, the wrist and the neck, are, are and can be used. So stab wound. I think it's Malvolio in uh, 
Romeo and Juliet, after Romeo has stabbed him, says, <clears throat> and they say, how are you, old chap? Or words to that effect. He says, "'Tis not as wide as the church door, nor deep as a well, but twill suffice. Come tomorrow, and you'll find me a great man." Uh, once again, those that deal with trauma surgery know that you just don't know what's going on underneath here. We've no idea. Is it superficial? Has it hit a major organ? And I've seen people who've died by a millimeter, and I've seen people who've lived by a millimeter. If it hits your aorta, you've got problems. If it misses it, you're probably going to survive and just have a couple of stitches on your abdomen and a good tail to tail down the pub. Okay? And of course, the reason that these things don't look simple, they gape like that, is because of this man Langer went and invented his lines. I mean, why did Kreb invent his cycle and Langer his lines? My life, I'm sure, would have been a lot easier without these complicated things to learn. But we all know that these are the lines. Oh, bother. These are the lines of stress on the body. And if you cut across them, a stab wound will gape. If you cut with them, a stab wound will stay closed, which is why, for those of you who don't know, your appendix scar, if you still do, they still do appendicectomies, or it's all done laparoscopically now, isn't it? Um, when you were used to appendices, it was at sort of 45 degrees down in the lower abdomen, because that fitted here, and it gave you the best scar. Plastic surgeons know Mr. Langer better than anyone else. Then we get into the multiple stab wounds. A lot of what I see is single stab wounds, pub fights, two or three uh, episodes of a, usually a knife to hand being used. But when you get up to this sort of level, the blue dots are me, by the way, just trying to keep track of what on earth is going on here. Uh, <coughs> but when you end up with this degree of injury, this multiplicity of injury, it does suggest a huge psychological overlay. The chances are the person who inflicted this knew this person. Useful bit of information to give to this police, you know? Or, other thing is, they didn't know them, but there is a sexual component to this homicide. Now, the shepherd theory, and I put it is only a shepherd theory, is that people tend, it's a close personal thing, they tend to attack the bit that annoys them. And simplistically, this poor lady has been stabbed in the throat, but investigations reveal she was a bit of a nag. <laughs> I've seen other cases where men have, men have been rather too liberal with their favours to the other ladies in the neighbourhood, and they have received stab wounds rather lower down the body. Um, so there are overlays. Um, you probably don't spend a lot of your time thinking how you kill someone. Uh, it's what I do and what I think about. Um, so I've won my 15th wife now, but it's... A... Okay. Then we have other things like another cut. But let me just stop you here. What's odd about this scene? Say that again. No blood. There is no blood here. Can you imagine cutting a wound that deep and for there to be no blood? This poor blugger had been bludgeoned over the head by his girlfriend, um, who then decided, as it was Saturday and there was nothing on the movies, um, she cut him up and disposed of the body. Now, I've done it 26,000 times. It's not easy, okay? It's quite hard. You've got to have a lot of skill to be able to dismember a body. It is difficult. So if you're thinking of doing it, don't. Okay. But she did this, and of course, and she got down. There's the big bone in the, in the upper leg. There it is. So she got down to that, and she went, oh, bugger. <laughs> I really can't cut through that with my kitchen devil knife. Why well, She gave it a good go. Now... A man would have gone to B&Q, got a saw, 
probably an electric one, charge it up for 24 hours as per the instructions, because we do read the instructions, don't we? Unlike everyone thinks we do. And then cut through it. But no, she just gave up. First hurdle, she just <laughs> gave up. Went on to the uh, M6 and tried to jump in front of a car uh, to commit suicide. Unfortunately, it was an unmarked police car, so therefore quite a good driver. Uh, and, and they stopped and said, what's the matter, love? And she said, I've just killed my boyfriend at 42 Labelia Avenue. So they said to their mates, could you go and look in 43 Labelia Avenue, please? And lo and behold, there was a dead, dead man. So the case was solved quite quickly. Cause of death was simple. Cause of death is the head injury where she's bludgeoned in with a hammer. But it's this attempt to dismemberment. Bodies are dismembered. I did a case the other day that a girl had gone missing in about 2000. She was found in 2014. She was only found because the man had a fit of guilt, walked into a police station and said, I killed her in 2000, uh, and I can't live with myself. I'll show you where I buried her. How many missing people are there? Lots. And she was a missing person for 14 years, this girl. Um, so we have to wonder what is, what is actually out there. Okay, so gunshot. Don't often get injuries from this sort of weapon, but it does actually signify the crucial points of firing a gun. Projectile, pointy fast bit, lots of smoke, flashes and flames, because you detonate this chemical in the barrel, everything goes whooshing down the barrel, out the top. Now, this is critical because if you happen to be standing at this point here, you get lots of soot and flames and muck all over you. <coughs> if you're standing here, you wouldn't get any. And so this is how we use the appearances to position where the gun was in relation to the individual. So we can have some sort of rough guesstimate of range from person firing the gun to the victim. But it is only rough. We're much better, to be honest, in this range, this close range, than we are with um, something that's further away. Now, what I said about stab wounds almost really applies to this. This is a gunshot wound. It's not really that interesting. You know, it's not a lot of excitement about it, but it was fatal because it took out his aorta and his spine. But it is a gunshot entry wound. And of course, what goes in sometimes comes out. And if it goes in and comes out, then we can have some idea of where the person was facing, like John F. Kennedy. Well, we would have done, had they done the post-mortem properly, we would have known what was going on. But here it is. There's a hole. And there's this, what's called an abrasion rim around the side. Now, they used to think it was the abrasion rim was caused by this bullet spinning really, 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 really fast and sort of drilling its way into the skin. That's not what happens. If you do the mathematics, even a bullet that's spinning at 30,000 times a second at the speed it's traveling has done about one quarter rotation front to back in a human body. So it's not that. It is the tensile strength of the skin that is stretched, overcome, and finally splits that produces this, but it's a gunshot entry wound. There's no soot, there's no burning, so it's distant. And by distant, we mean usually over two or three feet. Because this is different. This is close. If a gun is actually held tight against someone's skin, it forms a seal, and you don't get this burning around the outside. <clears throat> you simply get uh, the hole with an abrasion once again but you can see the soot internally. This is a, um, a shot. It's a son who was shot by his father. He shot his wife. He shot his daughter. He shot his son, and he shot himself. Um, 
and he was found alive. He was treated, he recovered. He was sentenced to a time in a mental hospital. Um, he said he didn't know what was happening, didn't know anything about it, formed a new relationship in the mental hospital, told his new girlfriend, he said, well, actually, I am actually quite sane. I just didn't like them anymore, um, and I really wanted to get rid of them. Uh, and being a true and helpful new love in his life, she went and told everyone, and she was a star witness at his trial that then convicted him for murder. Um, so <laughs> you know, there's no faith and trust even in a mental hospital ward. But there we are. There's the blood. There's the, sh the, the shot. It's a distance away. This gun isn't pressed against his head. It is at a distance. Shotguns, of course, are completely different style of weapon. They fire multiple pellets. The idea is to kill some poor innocent bird or innocent animal running in the distance. The idea is you have a big spread. Here you can see perhaps that it's been close. There's no spread at all from these, the shot that's come out of here and a bit of burning around the outside. So this gun has actually been pushed up against the skin, but not quite tightly, and a little bit of the flame has come out of the side. Rather more distant shotgun injury. The shot is beginning to spread apart here. Main mass of the shot goes through the center there. And you have the peripheral, called the satellite shots. These are the ones that are beginning to spread out, beginning to move away. Um, judging range can be hard, and we rely very much on our ballistic colleagues to look at these and to perhaps do some test firings in order to be able to give uh, an estimate of the range if we have the weapon and if we have the correct pellets to use. This is a uh, skull. Back of the skull, big old. Cause of death, gunshot went to the back of the head. Sight is really significant because it's a classic execution site. It's where people <clears throat> are shot, kneeling down. Uh, and this is a case from quite a famous, famous case from Northern Ireland of a lady who had, uh, was uh, taken by the IRA, disappeared, and she was only found, uh, I think it was about 22 years later on, as a skeleton on a beach. Inside this skull was the bullet. The bullet matched five or six other IRA killings that had taken place. Uh, and I think there may even be still the possibility of prosecutions with this one. Bombs and blasts, as Jeff mentioned, um, I always seem to be traveling to places that most people are going away from. Uh, uh, so it's really a career of disasters or a disaster of a career. Uh, we all know these images. This is the second tower being hit in 9-11. Uh, I am what's called the UK DVI coordinator for the pathologist. So when something like this happens, my phone rings and we say, we've got a possible call. Now, going to somewhere like America is unlikely, although I did on my own um, go out and see what was going on. And it is purely for the coroner because we didn't want, when the bodies were repatriated to the, the country, Alison Thompson was the coroner of West London then, who we'd done a lot of work with, uh, we didn't want to have second post-mortems performed over here in that new coroner's district. We wanted to be sure we could trust the Americans. Sorry, that sounds a bit, sounds a bit <laughs> sideways, but we wanted to be sure their processes were right. Uh, and I went over and I saw and I was able to say, yes, they are. And if, providing you have an embassy man, as the coffin is sealed, to say that there is only one person in the coffin and there's not one person and 200 kilograms of cocaine, uh, if we have the coffin, sealed coffin back, then you can accept that. And the exactly what happened and the coroner was able to accept it and once again it made it easier for the families just think what it would be like in something like this your post-mortem is done in new york takes 
four, five, six months for the pieces to be collected together, to put together, comes back to England, and then there's, we have to open it up and start all over again. Be awful for the families. So that's what I went out there to do, just to give that sort of impression. And it was a very bizarre time to be in New York. This is Bali. This is immediately after the Bali bombing. You can see the sort of effects that are going on around there. There were two bombs, actually. There was one bomb in the nightclub, Sarah's Bar, and about 50 minutes later, there was a second car bomb in the street, so everyone had come out into the street, out of the buildings, and it was designed specifically to catch as many people as they could. The mortuary facilities were non-existent. There was one tap that dripped. It wouldn't run fast. It wouldn't run slow. <clears throat> we had bodies lying on the ground with bags of ice on top of them because that was the refrigeration. Uh, and that was a very, very difficult 10 days. London bombing, 7-7. The bus outside the GMC, or the BMA house, sorry, the BMA house. Um, tubes. We all know these are sort of seared into our memories, aren't they? These, these events. World trade, perhaps not so much Bali, but London bombing. This is outside BMA house. This is sort of you know, bodies being carried off. Managing mass disasters is a really difficult thing to do because bodies are fragmented and people are missing. 52 people died in the bombings, five of whom, of course, were terrorists. We were trying to sort of separate one from t'other. And the one thing the World Trade Center did was that people there said, we do not want a mass grave because there is no way I want any part of any of those bombers on those planes buried with my loved one. No way. You've got DNA, you can separate them. And it took a long time to make sure all of the body parts were recovered. All of the body parts were DNA tested. And then it raises a question that I'll come to in a minute. Actually. But this is, this is London after the bombing. Have you seen these people? I was actually going to last night just do a quick check and see who, who really was a victim and who wasn't. Um, and this is the temporary mortuary structure that was built. Alison Thompson and I, when I was working out in West London, we realised that Heathrow was on a patch. We went to have a look at the facilities that Heathrow offered because it was the DVI Disaster Victim Identification Mortuary for Central London. It was a shed full of snow plows with a sink. Uh, and from that developed a whole process where we put together and it actually culminated in this design the day before on the 6th of July of that year. The London Resilience Plan, with all of that integral planning, which I take no claim for, but it was completed the day before, and the bombs went off the day after. And thank God it worked, because this was a fantastic, clean, sterile facility to work. We were dealing not just with a mass disaster, we were dealing with four mass disasters with a huge terrorist input. It was, in our dreams as disaster planners, you know, the worst we could possibly have come up with. I don't think we actually had, even in nightmares. But this is it. Nice, clean, safe environment in which to work. The only thing was we didn't have the stories for wellies. Everyone insists on their own wellies. Oh, I'm not going to wear those wellies. You know, I'm dealing with bombers here, but there might be a little bit of thrush or something nasty down the bottom on that one. I'm not going there. <clears throat> okay, this is the sort of injury you get. Uh, relatively minimal on this man. There's a sort of triad of abrasions and lacerations, amputations, burns. But all of this has to be considered. What's train? What's bus? What's bomb? What's bomber's bag? What's relevant? It soon became clear there was a lot of blue plastic. And the blue plastic was from 
what was wrapped around the bombs, and that suddenly became important, especially when it was actually wrapped up with Quranic verses. This is just something we have to be careful of, just to hear quickly every, every single piece, not everybody, every single piece that is recovered gets a number, a unique number, and we have to reconcile that in the end. It is a huge task to do this and to do it safely. In Lockerbie, they made a mistake, and someone was incorrectly released to the States, and their body was cremated. And then they realized the mistake. By that time, the body was cremated. So what did they do? Someone, when they, the real person's family, doesn't have a body. And coping with this sort of thing is like dealing with a deck of cards, a house of cards. As soon as you lose one certainty, everyone says, are you sure? Is it my relative? When I go to that grave, can I be sure? And we have to give them, I'll come back to relatives again, we have to give the relatives that certainty. Because not to do so, or to fail to do so, is a disaster for them again. So here we are, here's a, a difficult seat. It is actually just a lump of bone. But it's a lump of bone from someone else that's embedded in this man's thigh. Okay. Severe disruption, close to the bomb, bits of body going everywhere. This bit of bone has become embedded in his thigh. And in the process, that now gets another number. That becomes a separate exhibit that we have to reconcile, identify. This is not, I fear, actually, as I put it up here, very clear. And wedding ring, very useful. Lots of people have wedding rings, OK? Unless you've got something engraved on the inside, it's not really useful. What's key here, can you see it, is a, is a wallet. OK? Wallet, credit cards, all those useful things. But remember what I was saying to begin with? You can't rely on it, because it could be a pickpocket. <coughs> See, in this case, it was firmly embedded in this man's pocket. Got to be him. It wasn't. It had been blown out of someone else's clothing and impacted with him. So you can't even trust the things that might be there. Okay? The only thing it gave us was that whoever's wallet this was, was one of the victims. Um, but bless him, the Daily Mail had already published the names of the victims. <laughs> so uh, far ahead of the police. But this is the reality. Whole bodies, yes, but fragmented remains. And this is, um, I'm not actually quite sure which disaster this is from, but it is this sort of thing that is collected up. And then we have fragments of bone. Are they human? Are they animal? Because remember, there's dogs, cats, pigeons. Outside the BMA, there are lots of pigeons. We've got more pigeon nests than you could possibly believe. I think the police were having a joke on us because every time we got a wing, they said, you sure it's not human, Doc? No, it's not. It's a bird. Okay? Even I can tell it's all. I think the anthropologists should check it. So we have anthropologists who are very, very good on bones. I mean, they are fantastic. They will tell you um, not just what, what, whether it's human or animal, but they will tell you what bit of human and whether it's right or left. They are superb. But the question World Trade raised was, do we have to identify every person who has died or every piece that we recover. And there's an interesting thought going on there, because the coroner in 7-7 um, said that any piece that is not a recognizable bit of tissue, in other words, it doesn't have a, a bit of fingerprint on it, it doesn't have a tooth attached to it, it doesn't have something that would be useful for identifying. If it doesn't have those things, and it's less than an inch by an inch by an inch, I think it was 2.5 by 2.5 by 2.5, 
centimeters. We're not going to analyze it. We're going to treat that as non-identifiable clinical waste. Because to try and do so with this sort of pile of rubbish, there's a bit of an ear there, so that would have been identified, but we're not going to take it to the end because that way raises huge problems. World Trade people said, I want every bit sent back to me. What, after four years? Do you really want to get through the post? Another bit of tissue that we finally identified through DNA? No, no, I don't want to do that. Well, what are we going to do with them? Not sure. Okay. Big, big issues, philosophical issues. DNA, Alec Jeffries, brilliant bloke, produced fantastic changes in forensic science. But this is a significant problem when it comes to mass disasters. <laughs> well, that lightens things up a bit, doesn't it? I'm very pleased to say the, 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 um, the, the registration plate isn't British, because I don't think the British would do that. Uh, there'd be four people standing around telling him how to do it, wouldn't there? But <laughs> dear old Rissassiani, I think it's tremendous. They just kept going no matter what. And cause of death. Of course, we have to get to the cause of death to try and understand what's going on. Uh, I've probably got about another sort of 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Would you, those that want to leave for a coffee? No? Are you all happy? Yes? Okay. Some sad, some humorous if you have a pathologist's sense of humor. This is sad. Classic drug addict death. death. You can see the needle syringe in his hand. I'm doing a lot of work on deaths in custody. Um, I'm not going to go down that track tonight, but why young people die in prison is a, is a disgrace. Uh, how we look after people in prison, particularly young people in prison, is a disgrace at the minute. And, but that, going from that, once you go into prison and you stop taking your heroin, you lose your tolerance. The speed of development of to tolerance for heroin is incredibly fast. And the speed that it's lost is incredibly fast. This lad had gone in for a one-month sentence, which meant he served three weeks. He went in quite a heavy heroin user, and he got what was technically called support from the healthcare teams. I mustn't ride my hobby horse too much. It wasn't tremendous. They gave him some methadone, locked him in a cell. He came out. He went straight back to his old haunts. He got the same amount of drug that he was used to taking, and he shot it up. And within five seconds, he was dead because his tolerance had gone. One of the things we're trying to teach them when they go out is... You can save some money, guys. Just don't buy as much smack. You know, if you're going to do it, just be careful. But they don't. And this is a tragedy when these deaths happen. Any death like this, any death of a young person. But this sort of thing is, is totally avoidable. On the other hand, this isn't. This is really calculated. Uh, this is really planned. Uh, big hospital syringe. Butterfly in the back of the hand, nice milky solution. Anybody, any anaesthetist in the room want to guess what it is? Yeah, probably, yeah. It's that sort of goody, 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 yum, yum stuff. It's an ODA. Wanted to commit suicide. Nicked all these things from the operating theatres. Uh, maybe my Dazzleham, but I'm not sure. I'm trying to remember what he actually had in his toxicology. But this was a really carefully planned suicide. You know? Really carefully planned. Not an accident. Absolutely deliberate. And I'd have to say, given his background you could sort of understand why, why he did it. You know, things were not going well for him 
at that time in his life. But it's sorry that he wasn't able to get it. Of course, this, the biohazard tape has been put on by police officers. But it's a shame working in the hospital, none of his colleagues picked it up. Occupational health wasn't there. There wasn't the support that he could turn to. Exit suicides, um, still going on, published on the web. Um, Valium, alcohol, bag over the head, said to be nice and easy. Uh, a lot of people are going over to Switzerland now for sort of rather more medicalized variations that you don't get the bag over the head in Switzerland, I don't think. But it is an exit suicide, classic exit suicide, this one. Hmm. Little old lady, halfway down the stairs, dress up round her waist. What's going on? Forget the body. Look at the background. This wasn't that long ago. 2006, it's a bit of a grainy photograph, but no carpet on the floor. There's her shopping trolley. She actually lives upstairs. This is in the masonette. But look at the carpet. It's been turned once, isn't it, where it's worn. So the landlord, bless his cotton socks, has turned it round, but it's still not terribly secure, this carpet. When we talk to the people who found her, in fact, this door was shut when they went into the place, because they hadn't seen her. Uh, no one had actually reported her missing, but they just hadn't seen her for a while. And when they opened the door, there she was, lying face down. And she's tripped and fallen, and she's actually asphyxiated, head down on the stairs. It's something called positional asphyxiation. That happens when you simply can't breathe because of the position you're in. Happens with alcohol abuse, excess, Drugs, sometimes. People with severely debilitating diseases, multiple sclerosis, multi-neuronal disease, fall out of bed. You know, someone who drops their glasses, reaches out of bed to try and pick them up off the floor. Suddenly, they've got all their weight of their abdomen pressing on the bottom of the diaphragm, and they simply can't breathe. But she had simply fallen through being slightly doddery and old, I think, nothing else, and had found herself in that position. I had a joyous time actually working out in Dublin. I'm actually a registered medical practitioner in Dublin. So I have two lots of appraisal and two lots of revalidation to do. So isn't my life complete? Um, but here's a, a good stabbing down the stairs. Lots and lots of blood, lots of stab wounds. But we can follow the trail of blood. It's a bit like Pooh Bear, this, isn't it? Bump, bump, bump down the stairs. And this is what the guardy did, being clever chaps. They found the body. Realised he was dead. They didn't call an ambulance at that time, so they'd actually take sensible decisions over in Ireland. And they bumped back the stairs and walked along the balcony and walked back to the flat that the bloodstains came out of, knocked on the door, and there was a man with a bucket and a mop cleaning up the bloodstains. Um, and I'm not quite sure what the Irish equivalent is. It's a fair cop, Gov, but that was, that was it. They'd had, they'd had an argument over money, uh, and uh, that was the end. This is a little... Harder to see, perhaps. Just here, um, buried in the wood, actually hidden away, bits of log put over it, black plastic bags. In that black plastic bag is granddad. Um, and granddad, um, because people are now forensically aware, has no head and no hands and no feet. But it's definitely granddad because he's actually got his coronary artery bypass scar on his hip with the hit number in, so it's all, all sorted out. Uh, and his two grandchildren actually wanted to go and live in his house. 
Uh, he wouldn't move out, so they killed him and buried him here. Uh, but this is a good example of someone who is actually disposing of a body. We never found the head. We never found the hands. We did find the feet for some reason. I can't remember now why we did. But here he is buried away. This is a deliberate murder for a reason with an attempted disposal. And it's only because, see the ripping of the black plastic bag there? It's only because somebody's dog came back with sort of, you know, fat on their muzzle that they pushed their way in to see what was in there and was smelling a bit. Um, and then they realized there was a body there. So it could have lain there for a good, good while longer. Uh, I'd say one long time ago when I was on call, I remember walking in the smell of a, a deco decomposing body. This is just before. Um, it's a tea and coffee we're having there. Um, the smell of a decomposing body is very unique. And I remember walking on thinking, uh, you know, as the on-call pathologist for the south of England, I know that smell. <laughs> you know, should I phone someone up and tell them? I mean, is it, is it unethical to report a case so that you can do the post-mortem? You know, I'm not sure. <laughs> Uh, I phoned up the defence union and they just hung up on me. I think. <laughs> but in the end, it wasn't. It was, well, it was. It was a dead animal. It was a dead badger. Uh, and then I had the problem because I have a Jack Russell, keeping the dead Jack Russell out for the, for the badger. But we'll come to we'll come to Jack Russells in a minute. Um, this is perhaps rather more typical fight disturbance. You can see how this girl has moved around. There's blood. There's blood splashes. We have. Ologists coming out of our ears now on crime scenes. We have blood splashologists, we have ballisticologists, we have forensicologists, but all these people come in and they look at this and they analyse what's going on and they try and work out what's happening. Okay. Uh, you can see the drips there, you can see a huge area of blood. She had taken out an injunction against this man to stop him molesting her because she feared domestic violence. He was put in prison for three weeks and she went and met him from prison. <coughs> They then went to the pub at 10 o'clock in the morning and drank alcohol until 5 o'clock and took cocaine <coughs> together. And then she invited him back to her flat. Uh, and then he killed her. So there's a moral there somewhere down the line. I'm not sure. It is just a, a tragic situation in these people's lives. Tragic situation. No one, no one knew this lady was dead. No one had missed her. Not the GP. Not the carers, health visitors, no one. And she was just found like this when the council came around to repair something. She'd been dead probably for a year or so, just quietly decomposing in her room. On the other hand, those of you like Blackpool, uh, you might, well, you would have met him because he was apparently a well-known feature of Blackpool, someone called the Colonnades. Look around the room and see if anyone is nodding. No, you all kept straight faces. Anyway, you will notice there's a slight discrepancy between attire and genitalia. Yeah? His way of having a good Friday evening was to go to the colonnades dressed thus and to bend over the colonnades and look at the sea, inviting participation from anyone who happened to be walking past who felt so inclined. And he had done this, and as I say, he was a well-known feature of the colonnades except that one day someone took severe exception to him and hit him on the head with a Calibu bottle. Or Maribu bottle, not Calibu, Malibu bottle. Uh, and uh, this is how he died. Uh, his wife, who knew exactly what he was doing, wasn't terribly upset because she said it was getting her down a bit that he kept going out on Friday nights and not staying in with her to watch Coronation Street. I can understand that. 
Okay, dangerous dogs. We're getting very close to the end. So, so we go for the R photograph of the evening. This is Archie. Oh, thank you, whoever did the R. This is Finn, who's about to kill Archie. <laughs> uh, and I, actually, on that subject, I, I do quite a lot of veterinary forensic work. And I've got a colleague in Cambridge University called John Cooper, who is a forensic vet, do a lot of joint teaching. And there's a lot of overlap between child abuse, animal abuse, abuse of, of uh, the, the veterinary uh, animals, so-called um, companion animals now, but also the big animals. And John is out, always out in Africa. <coughs> doing the exciting bits, hunting down wild game and looking at gorillas and things. Anyway, this is Archie, who is uh, the love of my life, well, second love of my life. On the other hand, now, the first doctor who went to the scene said that this is a dog injury. Um, I've never known my dog, I mean, I, as you see, I love him to bits, but he's not that neat. I mean, he's a good boy, but he is not that neat. This man was a postman, dead in his house. His house was neat and tidy. Uh, he was just propped up naked on the landing with his genitalia missing. And that's it. He did have a dog, actually, it must be said, but the dog had nothing to do with this. Okay? I think the answer to this question lies in the word, word he was a postman. I have no proof that that is a significant part of the story, but I believe it to be so. Um, however, on the wall, and you should look at, always look at all of the scene, on the wall, cut out of a newspaper, was this pinned. Okay? Someone had brought this to the house and stuck it up on the wall. And he had the Jack Russell, so it all told the story. He was murdered, I have no doubt at all. I'm actually still not quite clear how he was murdered, uh, but it was obvious what the dismemberment was afterwards. Separate house, but if you go into a house and there's a skull like that lying on a seat in the lounge, it's not a good start. <laughs> I mean, it has to be said, someone else's day has probably been worse. That's true, but it is not a good start to the day. And sure enough, when you look in the other parts, here's an, an alcoholic man, once again, dead for a while. <coughs> if you don't feed dogs, they will begin to predate on uh, their owners. Uh, and skulls actually are quite a good size for dogs, even smallish dogs like Jack Russell's, to carry around. So when I wake up in the morning and he's lying there with one eye. <laughs> great. Right, other thing very quickly. I've had a couple of these recently, actually. Um, Things stuffed through letterboxes. We've got your daughter. Give us the money, you know, or we'll do this. Uh, these are actually, oh, these are actually animal hearts and lungs that someone's got from an abattoir. Uh, it's just a very, very nasty thing to do to someone to push these through their letterbox with a note attached to them. Uh, but they do come up quite often. And, so, and finally, uh, I will be finished in but a couple of minutes. Scrap metal dealer, north of London. <coughs> dead. Okay, you probably gathered that. Uh, <laughs> by this stage in the evening, the pool of blood is the giveaway and the fact that I have a photograph of him, those two things combined together. He has been shot with a shotgun. Now, I'm not going to show you the shotgun injury, you'll be pleased to hear. What I'm going to say is there is one thing in this picture that is out of the ordinary. It's even been circled. Okay. It is really strange because it's a finger. 
Bloody hell. Right? Stretching my mathematical skills to their absolute limit. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. Did he have polydactyly? Probably not. So where could this finger have come from? Answer. When you hold a sawn-off shotgun, do not put your index finger over the dangerous end of the barrel <laughs> when you pull the trigger because it will get blown off. And at which point you jump up and down a lot, swear, run back to the car where your mates are waiting, and they drive you home. Now, of course, as we mentioned, fingerprints, criminal records, name, address, plod goes round. You seem to have lost a finger, or <laughs> where's that effect? Um, yeah, it got caught in the fan belt of my car as I was trying to repair it. Oh, dear. Come to the hospital with us. We'll help you make, get it made better. The police are like this, you see. They're, they're sometimes quite subtle. It's not all Sweeney stuff. So they take him into the, into the hospital, and they x-ray his hand. And guess what's in it? Shotgun pellets. And guess what's in this? Shotgun pellets. And they match. <laughs> and we're able to prove, obviously... And this is one of those cases where very early on in the procedure, he said, it was me, Gov, it's a fair cop. But he wouldn't ever admit who the other people were who helped him commit that crime. So it's bad enough leaving a fingerprint at a crime. <laughs> it is even worse if you leave a fingerprint in the blood of your victim proves you were there at the same time and after they were injured, but to leave your finger at the crime <laughs> is appalling. So, if you have been, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed it. Could I ask Dr Lizzie if it's got to be a vote of thanks? Thank you very much. I think you can see from the fantastic turnout, um, it's probably the biggest turnout we've had in a very long time. Well, that so, was before I spoke. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you haven't left, I suppose. That's true. Well, the doors were locked. I was slightly disappointed that you didn't talk about the colour of dinosaurs, but maybe oh, that's coming next, year. next time. Next week. Fantastic, interesting talk. Um, you know, I will try and remember my stab and my uh, incised injuries now. Yes. Um, and maybe you'll come back and tell us what you think happened to JFK, maybe mm. another time. Thank you. Thank you very much and thank you. For